for Christ's coming. We're excited that he's coming again. And God, we get to celebrate that reality. Uh, we know that this is not his natural birthday. Um, however, we do uh, want to make known that he was born. And in the reality of the fact that he was born, he's going to uh, he's going to come again, and Lord, I don't know, I'm just so excited about that reality today, that the rod of Jesse um, died on the cross for our sins, and was risen from the grave and ascended, and the angels told the apostles, the same way he left is the same way he's returning. And so we look expectantly upon your return, so we want to celebrate you more than just this time of the year, we want to celebrate you always. However, there is something special about celebrating when you came. Lord, as we, um, for a few moments, just meditate on the reality of our life in you and the beauty of the implications of you coming, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, my strength, my redeemer in whom we trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody agree with that said? Everybody agree with that said? Amen, amen, amen. If you would turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. While you're paging towards it, why don't you stand to your feet? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. If you're there, say amen. Amen, verse 4. It says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Somebody say, Abba. Father, uh, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. We're going to zoom in on verse, we're going to zoom in on verse four and just spend the majority of our little bit of time um, here. I, I will not take up the entire time because I know some of y'all got some food in the oven and all of that that you scared going to get burnt up, especially those of y'all who drove here and the rest of you guys who walked here. Um, this is an interesting passage um, of Scripture, probably one of the most succinct passages about Christmas. Uh, uh, it, it's probably the shortest, most succinct, beautiful soliloquy of giving us a picture of God's passion to see people transformed by the renewing power of the gospel. In the book of Galatians, of course, some of you were with us when we went through the book of Galatians, but for those of you who are new to us, Galatians is a book where Paul is defending faith. Say faith. He's defending the, 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 the foundational crux of the gospel being by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. And in chapter 1, he spent all of that chapter dealing with the fact that anything that adds to faith in Christ as the gospel is another gospel. Wish I had some help right there. But then in the second chapter, he begins going through, and he begins talking about the fact that all of those who were the primary ones to receive the gospel from Jesus even affirmed the reality of the gospel that he preached. 
And then in chapter 3, he begins talking about not only are you saved, you're justified by the gospel. And no, not, not only is this gospel an affirming foundational truth for the apostles, but it also doesn't just justify you, it sanctifies you. Paul begins saying, how can you begin by faith and try to grow yourself up by your own bootstraps? And so he begins telling them that you're saved by grace and you're kept by grace. He said, you're saved by faith and you're kept by faith. You're saved by Christ and you're kept by Christ. And, and, so, and so in other words, the whole act of salvation from justification to glorification is a divine work of God by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And so he comes up here in chapter 4 on the crux end of the reality of talking about Abraham was saved by faith alone, through grace alone, you got it again, and through who alone? Christ alone. And on the end of that, he, he, he affirms the fact that the way that Abraham got into a relationship with God wasn't because Abraham was rich, wasn't because Abraham was savable, it wasn't because Abraham had anything in him that was of any value. He saved Abraham because he desired to put his hand and put his heart and put his mind towards Abraham. But what's so beautiful about it is in chapter 4, he begins breaking down that reality for those who would come after Abraham. And he begins affirming who the true children of Abraham is. And he begins talking about the doctrine of adoption. Say adoption. We're going to talk about that in a, in a few seconds. But, but, but this larger th a theme of faith in the book, by faith alone, uh, um, this series is through, um, through the book of Ephesians, is a beautiful thing because it's one of the main points of the Reformation, if you will. Uh, one of the things that, that Luther wanted to make sure that, that was recaptured was the idea of the fact that no one got into a relationship with God on their own merit, but got in based on God's merit through Christ. As a matter of fact, he got to Romans chapter 5 as a priest, as a, as a priest, and when he got to chapter 5, he shut his Bible. Because he couldn't believe that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that it says we are justified by faith in Christ. And that rocked his whole world because in the construct theologically that he was in, he was blown away by the fact that there was nothing man can do to get a relationship with God through Christ. And so this idea of sola fide or faith that pervades the book of Galatians, this idea of sola fide means faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied with all the other graces and is no dead faith, but faith working itself out in the lives of people through love. So, so faith must have one object, and that is Jesus, one means, that is grace, and one conveyance mechanism, and that is scripture. Faith is the non-meritorious instrument of salvation that is invigorated by grace, sufficiently supplied in the scriptures, and clearly grabbed tightly to Jesus' work. So as we go into this verse 4 and we begin with this pervasive philosophy of faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, we see a, a, a constructive birth narrative here. What Paul begins working through and talking through the time in which Jesus came about. He says, in the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son. I like that. But this is a, this is a beautiful point, which, again, my, 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 my big point here that I want to make is Jesus' birth was driven by God's timing. Jesus' birth was driven by God's timing. I, I, I like the fact, and I'm, I'm going to give y'all some little application on God's timing. But if I could just talk about the timing of God as it relates to Jesus first, uh, if you don't mind, it's interesting that Jesus' birth was initiated by God. Jesus' birth was not initiated by any work of men, any acts of men. It was an initiative. It was a divine initiative by the living God. Uh, in the fullness of time, the fullness of time is not when our individual salvation took place, but the sovereign choice of time by which God saw fit to send Jesus. In other words, God, 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 was, God is a planned parenthood dude. I wish I had some help right there. See, see, I know Planned Parenthood in our world tells you, uh, help you to decide when you're going to have a child and all of that or not have one. But I'm glad that there's a divine parenthood in heaven, that he's not looking for ways to get rid of me. I wish I had some help right there. He's not looking for ways to say, I don't know whether or not I'm going to birth these children into existence, but the way I'm planning parenthood is I'm actually planning to parent. I'm not planning not to parent. I think they should change their title from Planned Parenthood to maybe a parenthood. But, but here in this text, God plans being a parent, and I like the way he planned it. He was such a good planner that the Godhead got together in eternity past. And they chopped it up around the table of the Godhead, and they began pulling out their plans of time. And they began thinking through and working through what it was going to look like to become a, for the father to be a, a parent. And the father decided that he was going to choose his children. The son decided he was going to die for the children, and the spirits decided he was going to keep the children. And so, and so when we talk about in the fullness of time, the issue, the issue is, is that God in eternity past was thinking through and working through the corridors of what he wanted to happen. And as a matter of fact, fullness of time there points to the fact that he controlled, uh, he controlled the birth of Jesus from both eternity and time. Oh, okay, let me, let me see if I can make that plain. He, he controlled it from eternity and time. He, he decided he was going to save people in eternity. But he constructed time to facilitate what he wanted to do. I, I like that about God. God is a facilitator of time. He's not father time. He, 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 he's, he's, he's beyond time. And so, and, so, and so what's beautiful about the glory of God in this passage is that he worked out things that we could get saved. In other words, he, he, he ushered culture, he ushered art, he used music, he used, he used geography, he used kingdoms, he used politics as a way to make a way out of nowhere. Let me see if I can make it plain. Alexander the Great came in the latter part of B.C. and he began to uh, destroy a bunch of nations as he began to build the Greek Empire. And God used Alexander the Great, even though he didn't know him. He didn't know he's being used by God because he constructed a philosophy of life called Hellenism. And Hellenism was, 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 their, their, was their pop culture, if you will. 
At that time, at that time, Hellenism was the philosophy of life that controlled what you thought spiritually, that controlled what you thought socially, that controlled what you thought culturally, that controlled what you thought politically. But what was beautiful about it is God used them to create a universal language called Koine Greek in which we got our New Testament in. But that wasn't finished there because under the rule of Alexander the Great, under the Greek Empire, this Koine Greek language was going to begin to become the way in which the known world in the Middle East communicated, which became the birthplace of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, um, it controlled art. It controlled every single thing so that when, so, so, and the roads were built through the Roman Empire after they took over and beat the snot out of Greece. When they beat up Greece, they took all of that culture, planted themselves on top of it, but they did not know. They thought they were ruling, but there was one behind the scenes, behind the shades of time that was ruling beyond them, and were going to use their mess to be a makeup for lost people. And so, and so now we got Roman roads built. Now we got a common language. Now we got the connectivity of a bunch of groups of people. And then in the fullness of time, God sends forth Jesus. Why? Because during that particular time, uh, um, um, God would use all of those different roadways to get the message of the gospel out to millions and millions of people. So, when, so, as, as so many times in our lives, we think that we're working stuff out for our own good. But what's good about God is God is the author of time and eternity. And the fact that he's author of time and eternity, there is not anything in our lives that doesn't have a divine assignment on it. I like that. I, I, I like the fact that there's not a mishap of man that God can't recycle for his glory. There's not a frustration of my life that, 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 that God cannot use and, and use redemptively for his name. He took two of the worst empires in history and built a roadway for his son. But I like the fact that not only did it build the road for all of those nice things, it also built the road for persecution. Because persecution was going to be one of the main mechanisms by which the gospel was spread. So some of you are in a situation right now, if I could just make it plain, where you're wondering why in the world I'm going through what I'm going through. Well, God uses persecution to bring uh, uh, um, attention to himself. See, many times when we go through something, we want attention on us. But, but, but in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, this was going to be the birthplace by which persecution was going to be the way in which the gospel got out. How many of us, under the sound of my voice, views our fullness of time in the sense of the brokenness and messed upness and the trifling stuff that we deal with in our lives as God bringing attention to himself to get glory for his name. Even on Christmas Day, somebody going through the day. Somebody frustrated the day. Somebody hurting the day. But what I like about the God of the gospel is just like he had a fullness of time in bringing forth his son, he has a fullness of time to honor himself in your life. Everybody needs a fullness of time in their life. And I'm not giving you a fullness of time for deliverance because I can promise you that you're going to come out. And, and in three days, you're going to make it in it. Four days, you're going to be like this. But I want to tell you today that the fullness of time may mean just God may be glorified in your life. Nothing else. No, 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 nothing, no, no, nothing else but his glory. And that's what the birth of Christ is about. Christ came to suffer for his glory. What brought attention to God's name? Christ being on a cross. Everybody expected him to come in his flyness, but he didn't come in his flyness. If he came in his flyness, he'd have wiped us out. But it says, 
he sent forth his son. Say sent. I like that. Next point, Jesus' birth flowed from God's sense of mission. The word sent is an interesting word. It's a beautiful word that, 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 that Jesus used throughout Johannine literature in the book of John. And he uses it, especially in John chapter 5, to push forth his philosophy of the fact that he didn't send himself. In other words, he kept saying, I didn't went, I was sent. That's the Eric Mason translation. <laughs> and so what he was basically saying is, I don't speak what I want to speak. I speak based on the one who sent me to give glory to the one who sent me. So this, this language of sentness means that God put Jesus Christ on a mission. Now this points to several beautiful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to the fact that Jesus Christ has divine origins. That means that he's God. If he was sent forth from God, then guess what he... It, nobody, nobody in the Bible was sent forth from God, from God's presence. I, I, I'm, G, Jesus Christ was sent forth from God's presence, pointing to the fact that he had divine origins. But also what I like about this, inherently within this, is that it points to his submission to the Father. Or oh, some of us need to learn that. In other words, Jesus being sent by the Father, being God himself, was able to submit himself and put himself under the authority of the living God, God the Father, and be sent by him in a substandard earth among a substandard people to die for people that were raggedy in the mug. And I love that because Jesus Christ, it points to the beauty of his submission. But not only does it point to his submission, it, of course, we saw it pointed to his deity. But then it says, born of a woman. This points to his humanity. That means he's 100% God and 100% man. And pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is not 50-50. He's not a demigod like Hercules. He's 100-100, 100% God and 100% man. And that's beautiful because with Jesus being 100% God, he can talk to heaven. But with him being 100% man, he can talk to earth. But the beautiful thing about the two is he's, they're not mutually exclusive because he can bring the two together. That's what's so beautiful about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the eternal God-man. He lives forever in hypostasis. That's that nobody else in eternity or time will ever have the reality of having 100% God, 100% man, two natures, unmixed, one person forever. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to be who he is. So the person that was born on, on, on the day that we celebrate uh, um, um, took all of his glory and tucked it into an omega or a zygote and became man. And, 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 and he grew up. He grew up recognizing, recognize, I, I, I would just wonder what it was like. I wonder, I mean, like having Jesus as your child. I mean, I wonder what his life was like. Just if I could just, I mean, I wonder what it was like raising the God man. I wonder, did he correct his parents? You know what I'm saying? I wonder, I mean, I just wonder, you know what I'm saying? That's just the weirdest thing. Have you ever thought about what it was like for Mary and Joseph to raise the eternal God man? And him to be in your house, you in the crib looking at him. Like, dang. Like, you're going to save the world. Hair all over the place. It would just been crazy for me, right? Waking up. I don't know. It just stressed me out that God became man. But then finally, I told you I'd have you out of here quick. Jesus' birth points to the beginning of a new era. Because in the latter part of the verse, it says something beautiful. It says, born of a woman, born under 
the law. This is a powerful statement. Uh, because being born under the law meant Jesus submitted himself to God, but he also submitted himself also uh, to the law of God or the word of God in his submission to God. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. I like that because the fulfillment of the law is spoken of what it looks like to fulfill the law in the law. It says in Deuteronomy 6, y'all don't have to turn there, it's called the Shema. It says, Hail Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then it begins talking about throughout the, 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 the corpus of the book of the fact that you love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then later on it'll say, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it meant to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law meant that Jesus Christ loved God the Father perfectly in his humanity. Can you say you love God perfectly? Love them perfectly. And love people perfectly. Dang. Jesus Christ loved God perfectly. I want you to think about that. Not and made no mistakes in relationships. Even people that misunderstood him, it was still love in him allowing them to misunderstand him. It's crazy. <laughs> and it's beautiful to me because the law was to be a tutor for the Jews, Galatians 3.24. The law also, it revealed sin, revealed sin. It revealed that we're messed up because every time we try to keep it, we mess it up. And if you break one law, you broke them all. Romans 7, 7. But I like, by, by, I like the fact that in Romans, Romans 3.20, it says, By works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In other words, there is no way to be justified by the law because that's not why it came. It didn't come to justify. It came to point. I'll tell you why in a second. It, 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 it also instilled hope in the hearts of people. Romans 15.4. And it also gives examples of faith in Hebrews 11.4. It says, by faith, Abel offered God to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was, more, uh, that he was righteous. To God testifying of his gifts and through it being dead still speaks. But the most important thing that the law revealed was the holiness of God. Uh, the, the, the most important thing that it revealed was that God is holy and man isn't. Meaning that God, the, the, the beautiful word of, 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 of holiness means that God is without spot or wrinkle. I like the way 1 John 1.5 puts it. It says, there is no darkness in God, no, none at all. That I, 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 was, I was talking to my family the other night, and, and we, were, we, were, we were working through some, uh, uh, some spiritual warfare material in Psalm 91. And, it's, and, it, and, it's, and, it, and it said, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I asked, my, I asked my older son, I said, I said, son, what would it be like to be under God's shadow? He said, he looked at me like, that's interesting, daddy. He said, God doesn't have a shadow. I said, how you know that? Because, because God is a God of light. So to be under God's shadow is to be in his light. I said, doc, you just became a theologian just right there. <laughs> I said, that was incredible. I, 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 that's what it means that God is holiness. That even when he's covering you, he's not covering you in darkness, but he exposes you under his light. I wish I had some help. 
So God's holiness, God's holiness is the light and beauty of who he is without a speck, without a piece of dirt, without anything going in every direction. I believe Paul said to Timothy, he dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, he dwells in so much light, you just can't come up on him. He has to create a way for you to be able to approach him. That's why I like the fact that he's coming back. Because when he comes back, he's going to upgrade this costume called sinful flesh. Wish I had some help right there. And what he's going to do is he's going he's to he's come back on a horse with a tattoo, his linen outfit, looking good in a mug with a host of people. And he's going to come with angels. And the four winds are going to be all opened up. And when he comes back, his holiness, his unapproachable light is going to be shining in every which way. Every which way in every direction. Matter of fact, he's going to shine so much that people are going to try to go behind rocks with their shadows, but they don't recognize when his light pierces from eternity to time, his light will go around the rock and shine exactly where they are. In other words, the elements will become transparent and everybody, because of his light, will have x-ray vision. In other words, there will be nowhere to hide because he'll see you and we'll see you. I wish I had some help right there. And what's so powerful about his return is that when he comes back, his glory is going to shine. The Bible says that after everything is done and death is put away, and sin is put away, and the devil is put away, and all of that's put away, it says that he will shine like the sun. It says there was no need for a sun. Why? Because the glory of his holiness will shine. And guess what? That unapproachable light, not, the sun will no longer be the sun. The earth will be God's sun to shine the universe with his glory. And what's going to be booming is your body. Your new body will be able to withstand his holiness. Because right now, if his glory shone on us, his holiness shone on us, it would destroy us immediately. But he's going to upgrade our bodies and give us a new body. And when we're in the light, matter of fact, I don't know what the senses of that new body is going to be like. But I believe, I'm just saying, I believe that there will be, I may be playing, but ha, help me God. Um, 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 that, that, I, I believe our body is going to feel his holiness. And sense his holiness in a new way. Why? Because we will be able to walk fully in the law based on Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. Be holy for I am holy. And we will not only be holy, we'll be able to reflect the beauty of his holiness. And it's all because the Godhead got together in eternity past and decided that he wanted people to look like him. And he sent his only son to die on a cross and to bear the brunt of what makes his holiness angry, his wrath. And God took out all his wrath on Jesus, all of it, all of it, all of it. And Jesus Christ drank up the cup of wrath for every one of us. And he took his finger and licked the bowl. No more wrath. No more wrath for you. No more Satan's tyranny for you. If, if you repent of your sin and turn to him by faith, there was no other way to be saved but by Jesus. And so when we celebrate Christmas, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm getting older now, so I don't, I'm not a Bahambak dude no more, you know what I'm saying? I want to enjoy every aspect of it. And I want to enjoy at the center the reality that God's wrath is not on me no more. 
Because Jesus Christ did in six hours what it would have taken us an eternity in hell to do. Think about that. And so I pray today as you unwrap gifts, tear those gifts thinking of the one who was torn for you. As you look at the tree, we're going to redeem it all. Look at the tree. I want you to think that there are no twigs on the tree that he was a part of. He was on an old rugged cross. And I want you to think of the ornaments. I want you to look at the ornaments on your tree, and I want you to think of Jesus as the ultimate ornament hanging on the ultimate tree for your salvation and mine. And as his blood spilled to the bottom of the tree, like we put gifts under the tree, I want you to think of the things that you pull from under the tree as his blood. And remember his blood that spilled. But I don't want to leave you there because that's not the end of the story. Because on the third day, he got up from the grave with all power in his hands. And so today, if you want to celebrate something, celebrate the fact that he came and he's coming again. As a matter of fact, it was so cool because the apostle, he said, I want you to meet me here in the Mount of Olives. And he stepped on a cloud and he was talking to him and his voice got fainter and fainter. And they, and they, and they were looking at him and Jesus went on up into the clouds. Then two angels showed up and said, what y'all looking up in the clouds for? Go do what he told you. Be his witnesses. But he said, this same Jesus that left in this way is going to come back in the same manner. And so I like the fact that he wants us looking to the sky because he wants us looking to the Christ. But ultimately and beautifully, he wants us to get to work now being his witnesses. And so maybe you're here today and you haven't accepted the beauty of this offer. It's a beautiful offer. It's a beautiful offer. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. What's that so beautiful? That God sent forth his son. Every head bow, every eye closed. Maybe you're here today, and you don't know Christ as Savior. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you don't know him as Savior. We, we want to we wanna offer Jesus to you. want to offer him to you. want to offer him to you. Wanna, want you to believe and trust in this Christ, in this king, in this ruler, in this life-giving person. Repenting of sin, turning away, changing your mind about what you think about you, and turning to what he thinks about you. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it says. That means that none of us are holy. But I like the fact that even in the midst of the wages of sin being death, what we earn for our sin is death, separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus.